Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Romans 2, verses 12 to 16. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you please fill us with your spirit that we will have faith for eternity? Would you please prune our affections for this world and its people and things and turn our affections, as Alex commanded us to do in the Sunday school class, to Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in life and in death. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The verse immediately preceding our text this morning said this, Romans 2, 11, for there is no partiality with God. And it's very difficult for us to get this into our minds. Um, I sometimes say about Hannah, you've heard me say this, that Hannah is not my favorite. That's my daughter, one of, one of my three. And what I'm saying by that is if I were ever tempted to have a favorite in my family, I would pick the one that's least like me. And so what a relief God gave us Hannah, you know? And if you read in the Old Testament, you'll see that it says about families that there are favorites, right? You know that, that Joseph was his father's favorite, and then who took his place? Benjamin. And it has to do with seasons of life. It has to do in the Old Testament with who, who the mother is. Um, Jesus had favorites, And if there was any question about whether having favorites was a sin or not, we know from Jesus that it wasn't a sin. Because Jesus had three favorites. He had Peter and James and John. And we know that of those three, it seems quite apparent that John was his favorite favorite. Doesn't mean he didn't love the other of the 12 disciples. And so we go through life having favorites, and when we are baptized, and when we become a part of a church, we begin to think in terms of us being God's favorite by virtue of being baptized, by virtue of of worshiping Jesus. And the Jews had the same problem. The Jews said, hey, God chose us. And despite the fact that God said, yeah, but don't think it was because of anything great Actually, I chose you because you're pathetic. And that's what God says several places in the Old Testament. I wanted to make absolutely clear that it was only because you're so pathetic I chose you. And many of us will admit that. If you were to go back to wherever you grew up 
and ask the people where you grew up why you are a Christian, they would say about you because he is so pathetic. Right? This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said about the people that God chose. Not many of you were wise, not many of you. God is not interested, not interested in playing favorites in his choice, except that he will choose the pathetic ones. That's why I've always been sympathetic to the statement that God has a preferential option for the poor. You know, it's not that God believes that the rich people should transfer their wealth to the poor. That's not the point. But the point is that God has shown across history that he has a tender place in his heart for the pathetic. Now, the minute that pathetic person, as you and I are, is chosen... We then begin to judge God. First of all, we judge him for not choosing the people we want him to choose. You know, we immediately say, now choose my family members. And if you don't choose my family members, then I will not serve you, right? And then we also go on and we say, now don't reject me just because I repudiate our covenant. So God bonds us to him. We're in covenant with him contractual obligation with him, and then we say, okay, you chose me, and now to heck with you, because you chose me, and and you have to be faithful to your covenant. I'm marked, I'm baptized, and I'm looking at my baptism, but I ain't looking to you. And so this is what we do. We we constantly try to trade on on preferences and... um, Partiality. We constantly try to manipulate God with things other than what? Other than our heart. We manipulate him through images. Alex was teaching us in the Sunday school class. We manipulate him with our knowledge of Scripture. You know, we're, we're a good Bible teacher. We manipulate him through being baptized, through the Lord's Supper, through, with the Roman Catholics, with seven sacraments, you know. Duh, buh, 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 buh. We manipulate God by not littering. We think that God owes us something because we're so enlightened and don't litter. Or we manipulate God by not smoking. We have all these ways of keeping track of where we are in the pecking order, and we expect God to respond to us in a way that reflects the pecking order that we have. Are you with me? And so the Apostle Paul wants us to be done with trusting in anything except the shed blood of Jesus. Anything! Because God is jealous, as Alex was teaching us this morning. You get the, you get the idea that I'm trying to get you to come to Alex's Sunday school class, right? By this time. Okay. We, we will use anything to try to bypass our love for Jesus in our heart. We do not want to give him our heart. That's it. Okay? And the Apostle Paul is trying to show this to us in Romans. He's trying to show us that we don't want to give God our heart. We don't want to love Jesus. I know everybody says they love Jesus, and everybody says Jesus is love, but nobody knows less about Jesus than the person that says Jesus is love. I mean, it's true, but that's always used as a placeholder for rebellion against God. So the Apostle Paul is trying to get us to stop manipulating God. And if there's anybody good at manipulation, it is the Jews, okay? I just made an anti-Semitic statement, okay? It won't be the first or last time. And the reason is, what's the joke? Well, the joke is, how many Jewish mothers does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, none, I'll just sit here in the dark. 
It's a Jewish joke. And that's manipulation. And here are the Jews. God chose them. Never mind that it was because they were pathetic. Never mind that God says that they were in their afterbirth naked on the ground. Remember? That's what he says about them. Never mind that. They were chosen. And central to their being chosen was what? The fact that they were what? That they were the recipients of the law. The law defined their race, their nation, their personhood, their covenant. They were the people of the law. That's why often you'll hear them referred to as the people of the book. That's why John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so they were the recipients of the law. Now, the word that he uses here when he says, for all who have sinned without the law, the word he uses here for law is namas. And namas is the word that we get our word antinomian from. Anti-law, anti-namas, okay? This word is not referring to just law in general. It's very specifically referring to the law that God sent from the top of Mount Sinai. Remember Alex was saying that you heard the voice from the top of the mountain this morning in that Sunday school class you didn't go to, right? Okay. That law is what he's referring to. And what he's saying is the Gentiles were not given that law. All right, so almost always when the Apostle Paul refers to namas, to law, in English, in, in the New Testament, it is, in fact, God's moral law. His revelation of his character by, by, by revealing his character in special revelation to the Jews through the law. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word sounds like Torah, which is why we have a transliteration in English called the Torah. It's the same word, the law, all right? And what he's saying here is, for all who have sinned without the law. Well, who would this be? This is the Gentiles. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, okay? And then he says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, who's that? It's the Jews. So he's, 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 He's giving all of us that very thing that the world is in an orgy of seeking today, which is equality under the law. Okay? He's giving it to us right here. Jews, Gentiles, equality under the law. We're all under the law. But we're under two different laws. The Jews are under the special revelation of God's moral commandments put on Mount Sinai, spoken from the clouds, written on tablets of stone, and then a superabundance of them in the form of of, of judicial and ceremonial and moral laws, all right? Whereas everybody else, now this is where it, it gets a little tricky. Everybody else is under what law? Well, they're not under that law. That defined the Jews. And that means that if everybody was under that same law and had received that same law, there would be no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. That's why he says he's establishing equality under the law for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, equality under the law, Jews and Gentiles, all judged, all going to perish, all under the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, why would he add that there? Why would he say it's not the hearers, but it's the doers? Well, it's because of what we've just been talking about. We've been talking about the fact that we're always trying to jack God around. We're always trying to put our hope 
in superficial, uh, objective um, ceremonies and rituals. And people, it won't work. It just won't work. I was thinking today or yesterday about the fact that in most churches you go to in America today, there's no ceremony or ritual. I mean, that's the thing that defines the worship. You know, all the prayers of confession, the assurance of pardon, all the confession of faith in the Apostles' Creed, the Gloria Patri, all that stuff is completely gone. It's gone. As a matter of fact, in evangelical churches now, rarely do you even have anything approximating a pastoral prayer. You don't even have a time of prayer of the congregation where you take your sick people and everybody before the Lord. Even that's dispensed with. What you have is a helpful thought for the week with stories, which is what a sermon is usually today, and then you have some songs. And if you watch what's going on in the songs, the songs are all aimed at making you feel that you have a special relationship with Jesus. Now, We once had a woman in this church who was very, very spiritual, okay? And we had always had a classical, uh, actually not this one yet, but we'd always had a grand piano, and we we had good musicians playing the grand piano, you know, and we sang our hymns to the grand piano, and then we decided that we were going to put a a guitar up on the platform, right? And oh, 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 That was a no-no. And this woman was furious. And so she stopped coming to worship. She just showed up when I'd get up to preach. And she'd be up in the balcony. (laughs) And and this went on for a few months. And and finally I went up to her and I said, uh, let's call her Joan. I said, Joan, um, why are you not coming to worship, you know? Well, it's because of what you said. Well, okay, it's what I said. Yeah, don't come to worship, right? I said, what do you mean it's what I said? And she said, you said that we're supposed to give our best to God, and this is not best. And I said, okay, John. Um, why is it not best? So then, of course, you get this spiel about, the, you know, the relative superiority of this syncopation and that that key and that instrument. And and by the way, the guitar was played by a classical guitarist who hit every single chord precisely such that it never violated a single note of the soprano, alto, tenor, or bass. So it wasn't even a guitar. I mean, if you'd listen to it, you'd say, what's wrong with this? Doesn't everybody know you play C and D and E, you know? But this guy was playing like... D25 and C47, <laughs> you know, and every chord was one strum, <laughs> right? Any of you remember this? <laughs> yep, it was true, it was true. And, and so I, I said to her, what is best? I said, If you were to go to a church that did not allow you to confess your sinfulness at the beginning of a service, would that be best or second best? (laughs) You see, we don't think about that. 
And that's because we have cultivated an absence of discernment in in how we worship God. And so we don't notice if there is no confession of sinfulness in the part of Christians when they get together for worship. Because what we're focused on is whether we can be stroked in such a way that we leave with a good feeling. That's how we judge worship today. And so I told her about another church in town where there wouldn't be any instrumentation at all. And I said, why don't you go there and listen for whether there's a conviction of sin at that place? And because we were so close to her, and my wife had spent so much time listening to her complain about her mother and all this stuff, I was absolutely certain that this woman would be brought to her senses, and she was. She went once, and that was it. She was gone. She was gone. I ran into her a couple of years later. And so we look at how worship is handled today, and we we judge the Apostle Paul's letters on the basis of our worship today. We go into evangelical churches, and there's just some really upbeat songs at the beginning that make you feel that God's grace covers your sin, but you don't confess your sin. You're not pushed to think about your sin, but you're just sure that grace of God is abundant. And then you have a helpful thought for the week, and then you go home and, or you go out to eat. And then if you're ever in a church where that's not the routine, you think these people are sick. Why would people get together publicly and confess their sin? Don't they know that they have, all right, you ready for this? Victory in Jesus. And I'm making fun of it because there is no victory in Jesus for people that think that way. None. There's not. The Apostle Paul, in this text, is giving us intimacy with Jesus. And the way he's doing it is he's a boa constrictor, and he's wrapping his arms around us and pressing and pressing and pressing and pressing to us until, like the little brother under his older brother, he says, uncle. And that's what we're in in this. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, those, that, the Gentiles who have no none of the the, the benefit of the Decalogue and being cleaned up by God, and the Jews who actually are judged by the law. He says both of them together, they're going to die under the judgment of the law, and then he stops because he knows what Jews are like. And he knows the Jews are trying to manipulate God by pointing to the fact that they've got the Decalogue, that they got the Passover, they were brought up in the land of Egypt, they, you know, they... Their oldest sons escaped, you know, all this stuff, you know, that makes them certain that God has tied himself to them so firmly that it doesn't matter whether God has their hearts or not. Do you understand this? This is always man's religion. Did you read the, the news today about them down in Texas? You know, they go into a house. And they arrest the people for cruelty to animals. Why? Well, because they've been sacrificing chickens and goats. Why do they sacrifice chickens and goats? And to whom do they sacrifice them? Well, it's because every single person knows that they stand condemned before a holy God. And so truly, Christian worship recognizes this tries to add to the weight of it, not diminish the weight, but add to the weight and present Jesus at the table. That's what we do. 
we're constantly reminded that there is no hope for us. That's Christian worship. And yet people today are completely offended by reminders that they're sinners, you know? We think that because we're baptized and we come to the Lord's table, remember in good standing, clear note church, you know, that we can pr- pronounce the word sovereignty, you know, that somehow it doesn't matter about our sin. And so the Apostle Paul, he has our number, like every preacher who knows God in his own sinful heart will have your number, and he stops, and this is what he says. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. (laughs) Cuts off all paths of retreat. It's not the hearers of the law, so all of you tell me right now, what are you right now? Hearers of the law. The Apostle Paul says it's not the hearers of the law, it's the doers of the law that will be justified. And the word justified means declared righteous by God. Now, at this point, we're going, oh, no. Oh, oh yes. Oh, no. Oh, yes and no. <laughs> you know, because on the one hand, we know when we come into church that we need our sin to be washed. What will wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. What will make me clean again? Nothing but, oh, precious is the flow. But on the other hand, he just said that you will never, ever, ever escape the judgment of God. Except what? You do the law. It's not enough to hear the law. So think of the Jews, you know. They go through the law, they know the law backwards and forwards, right? They know the law so well that they have figured out that your obedience to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. They know that law so well, they've studied for so long, they've heard it so long, that they have little strings that they extend from the front door of their house the whole way down to Aunt Mabel's house. So that they can walk to Aunt Mabel's house without ever getting out from under their house. This is true. You can go into New York City right now with the Orthodox Jews, and you will find what my father told me about growing up in New York City. You will find a category of people called Sabbath goyim. And these are the goys, the Gentiles, the disgusting, dirty people that have no hope of heaven, who they employ to push their elevators, although they have a technological solution for that now, to light your stove, to do your... Do you understand? you understand? Why? Well, because they know the law. They have heard the law, they have studied the law, and they have come up with an infinite number of ways that you keep the law. You may not look in a mirror on Sunday. You know why? Not because of vanity, but because if you look in the mirror, you might be tempted to adjust something on your face. If you break a leg, you may not set the leg unless it's to alleviate the pain. You may not do an act of healing, okay, you may only do an act of alleviating the pain. So if you can say that the setting of the leg is to alleviate pain, go ahead and do it. But if it's to heal the leg, no, that's reserved for tomorrow. And Paul, to these people who really are just like you and me, come on, look but don't touch men, okay? He says, it is not the hearers of the law. It is the doers of the law. And then you go, okay, I understand. I understand. But then you think to yourself, 
But I'm not a doer of the law either. And now what am I going to do? I mean, it says right here. It says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, (laughs) so now what do I do? Because I'm I'm not a doer of the law. I'm not a doer of the law. Now what do I do? What do I do? And he continues and he says this. For when Gentiles, it's a very sweet thing here that he takes the pressure off us because we're the Jews. We're God's covenant people, okay? And he's talking to us. But now he, he, he spins off and he goes talks about the pagans, the Gentiles, the worldlings. And so we can now begin to listen with some equanimity, right? Because he's talking about them. Okay, now watch what he says. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, the Gentiles, not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now he's not meaning to say that uh, their law is bad, that they're lawless. He's really talking about their law, and he's really saying that they are judged, condemned by their law. Now, what is that law? Well, we know that law is not the Ten Commandments, the moral law. We know it's not Torah. So what is that law? Did you notice the word that's used there? The word is instinctively. Do you see that? Instinctively. What does this mean? This means that every man and every woman and every child who has ever been born on this earth, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, knows the law of God. They know it. Do you remember he hit this theme in Romans 1? And so now you're thinking, well, (laughs) then what separated the Jews? Well, what separates the Jews from the Gentiles is the Jews were given a full revelation of the holiness of God, and the Gentiles only get a general revelation. The Jews got special revelation. It made them a special people. Whereas the Gentiles get God's character through general revelation. And if the Jews live by the law, it never stopped pointing to Jesus Christ. There was no way a Jew could keep the law of God without living a life of faith. Because that's what it did. It was an orgy of blood. It was, it was the scapegoat. You remember that on the Day of Atonement, they put the sins of the camp on his head and they sent him where? Out of the city. And where was Jesus crucified? out of the city. And so the Jews had these wonderful pictures that were just screaming, the Messiah is coming, and the Messiah is our hope, and God's going to take care of our sins. And when they kept the law, the special law they received, they were constantly being taught about the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Gentiles lived under the law. The Gentiles knew what? They knew that adultery was wrong. 
The Gentiles knew that sodomy was wrong, that lesbian was wrong. They knew that theft was wrong. They knew it was wrong to murder. Gentiles today know all those things. There's absolutely no way to watch the intensity of the escorts outside of Planned Parenthood without realizing that they know that they are cultivating and endorsing and seducing other people to kill their unborn children. Okay? You can't explain an escort without knowing that. But the minute you know that, then you pity them because you realize that what you're dealing with is people all around us who have this horrible sense of guilt and who are trying to to manipulate the cosmic vibes and karma in such a way as to alleviate or ameliorate their guilt. This is the explanation of ice fishing. There is no other rational explanation for ice fishing. Any of you ever ice fished? I've ice fished. (laughs) Now, I'm making a joke out of it, but this is... I'll never forget Joe Sobern writing, the only way to explain feminism is that it's working out the guilt of abortion. Okay? And I could show you thing after thing after thing. What is it that motivates the consistent, consistent, most obscene word of an entire culture whose mothers have no husbands who are faithful to them? And you think of Even in our obscene words, our expressions, we confess the guilt and the pain of our lives by what we choose to use as our expletives. Have you ever thought about that? There's guilt everywhere. And this is why I never stop trying to get you to see And I do it over and over again. I want you to understand that the morality of this world is a shell game. It is not true. Those outside of the church never stop lying. All of their petty rules that they enforce, that they're busy enshrining in in the law books of our nation, they're all an effort to escape their own guilt over the things that really matter. This is why Chesterton says that when you throw out God's big laws, you just make an incessant number of little laws. Why? They need to feel moral. (laughs) And so they just, they just, they just, it's just, it's just unbelievable number of laws that don't matter. If you read the news, what you'll see is a chronicling of all the laws that don't matter. All these public morality plays are everybody trying to show each other how moral they are. Why? Why does everybody want to show everybody how moral they are? Because nobody's moral. And they're working out their guilt and the condemnation that they feel constantly from the living God who is truthful by manufacturing all these little things that they you know, feel better. Like, did you see? He doesn't ever put out his recycling trash. And you know, if you're here and you have a hard heart, you think, well, that would be a typical 
conservative pastor who doesn't care about recycling. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, everything's political and I'm just, yeah, you're right. But what if, but what if I cling to Jesus because I know what I am? Huh? What if all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins? And the purpose of a pastor is to show you what deadness looks like and then to bring it to bear on you through, through a little thing like a mouth and to bring you low. And this is what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's bringing us low. And if you're still stuck in your childhood where your father was always trying to prove that he's superior to you, anybody here? Or your mother's trying to show you what an idiot you are, anybody here? If you're still stuck in that, you will never hear the preaching of the gospel and the writing of the Apostle Paul without thinking it's all about his hostility to you and his, his attempt to prove his superiority to you. And so you'll be resistant to the preaching of sin. You'll be resistant to being brought low by the word of God because you're so intent on saving your self-image and there's no image to save. There's none. There's nothing in you that commends you to me, let alone God. Nothing. And that's not an act of hostility or aggression on my part. Pathetic Facebook. That's simply my love. This is the Apostle Paul's love for us. He says, it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the They're going to be the ones justified. And he's doing that so that you first get completely depressed that you're a hearer of the law, and that doesn't help. And then he says, it's the doer. And at that point, you, you are absolutely hopeless. You're hopeless. You're hopeless. And that's the gospel. You know, it's so sad that we believe what, what people try to present to us. We believe all their, all their petty morality. We believe all their laws. We look at our next-door neighbor, and we think about the fact that every Saturday he gets out there, and he burnishes his idol, which is his pickup truck. And our pickup truck is dirty. And his is clean. And you know what? He has a pretty wife. And all his children are above average. And his pickup truck is clean. And we believe it. You know, and we think, oh my goodness, if only I as a Christian could also have a clean pickup truck. You know, that would be like the trifecta, you know? But of course, he's not a Christian. Well, how do I know that? Well, I know that because he has a clean pickup truck. Now, I know, you've got to walk with me, okay? I don't mean to say that if you're here this morning and you have a clean pickup truck, you're not a Christian. But you, you understand what I'm trying to say. Everybody has their morality. It might be Dodge and it might be Toyota. 
But everybody has the pecking order that they maintain very clearly. Why? Well, it's not because they think it means anything. It's because they think it means everything. You go up to that man's pickup truck and you touch it with your door. And you'll realize that this is not a pickup truck. This is an idol. (laughs) And you might die if you touch his truck. Why? Now listen. You, as, as a Christian, must realize that everybody you know in your family, in your neighborhood, everybody you work with is dying under the law. They might not know the Ten Commandments, but they're dying under the law. And they have no hope. They have absolutely no hope. Don't believe the image they project. Let's say your next-door neighbor doesn't commit adultery. Let's say his pickup truck is clean. Let's say that when there's a death in the neighborhood, he, he's the one who goes over and comforts those who, who are mourning. Let's say that he is the one who's downtown, uh, you know, picking up the homeless and taking them for a meal. Even then, the question you have to ask is, why is he doing that? Is he doing that because he loves Jesus? If he's not doing it because of his love for God, his motivations are perverse. His motivations are perverse. So yesterday, I'm reading online. I've heard that we have a new system to get internet out to the, to the uh, trailers. And Lucas is telling me that there's a way that for $89, you can buy these little ubiquity transceivers and receivers or antennas and, and line of sight nine and a half miles. And they work well. And what do I think? Oh, yeah, right. Heather and Doug and I, I mean, line of sight, you know, top of my seat, top of there. And I think, yeah, right. Save them. So I call Heather. Hey, we can save $1,000 a year. We'll have the internet. You have the receiver. And, and we'll snooker. But I didn't say snooker. But we'll take money from Comcast because all of us want to, right? We all, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of us want to take money from Comcast, right? And so I go a day thinking about this, right? And then I think, you know, maybe this isn't right, as in, maybe this is wrong, right? And so yesterday, I began to look online, and I'm looking for words like right and wrong and Comcast, and, you know, I don't really want to be doing it because, you know, I think, look, what's wrong with sharing internet? We share a lawnmower, we share a pickup truck, you know, we can share internet, right? We're family. It's a family affair. It's a family And what I begin to do is read all these unbelievers talking about how this is theft. And it's just the weirdest thing, because here I am, a teacher of the law. And I'm getting schooled by all these people who don't know God. And so I'm observing myself, observing them, you know how you, 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 at times like that, you like to get some space. 
And so I'm up here looking down on everything. You know, it hasn't quite hit home yet, or I'm not allowing it to. And I make this observation that people from other parts of the world who are writing on these ubiquity forums are completely and utterly unconcerned about whether it's honest or not and whether they're stealing or not. Nobody in Africa gives a rip. And then I think, you know, why do people in America give a rip? Am I just reading a bunch of Christians here? No. This is American exceptionalism. We still have residual respect for the law. And it is the law of God. This is the heritage of Americans. And it's a precious thing. So I send this email to Heather, and I wasn't happy about it. I didn't do it because I love Jesus. I have to tell you I did it because I was ashamed in front of the pagans. And they didn't know I was reading them. <laughs> you know? It was not like anybody, anybody there was looking at Oh, you're a pastor, you're doing this. But this little voice in my head was saying, you're a pastor and you're doing this. Now, do you see the motivation I'm talking about here? We can do things that are right for the wrong reasons. Or we can do things, we can abstain from doing things that are wrong for what? For not the right reason. It's just simply that we don't want to get in the shower in the morning and feel embarrassed. Is that love for Jesus? No, it's not. It's not love for Jesus. It's not. You don't begin to do the law until you love Jesus, and that's why you do it. Okay? Your neighbor does not love Jesus. He'll tell you that. And so all the good things that you see him doing are why? They're filthy rags. That's what it says in the Old Testament. All our righteous deeds are filthy rags. And this is the Apostle Paul's gift to us. He is constricting and constricting and constricting. He is, he is pushing and pushing and pushing on us to what? To get us to say, uncle. To get us to say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Okay? Nothing. And see, the great thing is that this is the great leveler. Because once this is true in the church, there's no pecking order anymore. There's no pecking order of sin. Why? Well, if anything, Jesus says the one who has sinned greatly is the one who loves most. And so if there is a pecking order, the pecking order is those who have sinned worse are at the very top. Does this make sense to you? When you come into the church, it's the ones who love Jesus the most who are at the top, and those people are always the people who have been forgiven most. And man, do I see this in my work as a pastor. And it's such a precious thing to me. You know, to see souls unburdened of horrible sins who adore Jesus Christ. Adore him. The Apostle Paul says, you know, 
Jews, they're going to be condemned under their law. Gentiles are going to be condemned on their law. Instinctively, they know it, their conscience. And all of a sudden, we realize, and I I don't have time to read it, but I have a section from C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. And if you're inclined to read Lewis, read that book. Okay, forget everything else, read The Abolition of Man, where he goes on showing that Chinese, that Muslims, that Europeans, Africa, everybody has what he refers to using a Chinese word, T-A-O, the Tao. Everybody submits to the Tao. Everybody knows what is right and wrong. And everybody knows that we have been made to worship God. So everybody knows the proper motivation, and everybody knows what to do and what not to do. And this leaves us without excuse, because he sent his son. He sent his son. He sent his son. Now, one other thing will be done. How does it end? This is very important that you see this. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending on the day. When? Do you notice that phrase? What does it say? It says, according to my gospel. Now, you should think that's weird. Because you've been taught that the gospel is good news, right? You know that the word evangelical, eangelion in Greek, you know that word means good news. Good, you, and galion. And so we're evangelicals because we believe in good news. And so he's saying gospel. And so what he's saying is, on the day when according to my gospel, but it doesn't follow, does it? We never, ever refer to God judging the secrets of men through Christ Jesus as the gospel. Never. If somebody told us, I'm going to preach the gospel, and they went out and preached the judgment of God, we'd say, I thought you said you were going to preach the gospel, you know? And we'd say, yeah, I did. I told him God loves you. has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, but that's not the gospel. Yeah, it is the gospel, The Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Say it's the gospel. Salvation. I say, yeah, and barely a chapter later, he says, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Well, I know that, but everybody knows that. Everybody knows they're a sinner. But what they don't know is their hope. And I say, listen, what everybody in America knows today is there's hope. Everybody knows that, you know, even the Detroit Lions, even the Cleveland Browns have hope. (laughs) Hope springs eternal in this wealthy, decadent country. We have no absence of hope, but all of our hope is false because none of it has to do with standing before the judgment seat of God. There is nothing more hopeful 
than seeing every single category of moralism that we want to put our trust in absolutely obliterated. Because the most hopeful person is the person who comes to Jesus, gets down on our knees, and cries and washes his feet with her hair. That is hope. She knew he'd, he'd receive her. She knew it. She knew it. And so one final application of this. I know that it's very hard for you to let me preach the gospel to your relatives and your friends. And the reason is you don't believe that conviction and judgment are the gospel. You want me to just give the good stuff. But I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way with you if you're a believer. You had to see your hopelessness to come to Christ. And it's not going to work that way with your neighbors. If you love your neighbors, have faith for their despair over their goodness being the very instrument that God will use to bring them to himself. Because if you don't do that, then all you care about is the pecking order of this life. All you're interested in doing is being an inoffensive member of your family. (laughs) But what good is an inoffensive member of your family? Even in the Crumb family. (laughs) I talked about your dad in the first service. You know, I'm reading David Crumb's autobiography, sort of. It's short, but it's his autobiography. And it's, it's, it's completely, utterly endearing. It's about how he got in the Marines, how he fought in Nam. But David Crumb is hopeless. He's a minister of the word. He's hopeless. He is a sinner. There's no man, even a man, who has two purple hearts from Nam, fought in the battle away, loved by his whole family, which is large, by the way, and which I happen to be related to. There's none righteous. There's not one. And if you will have faith that the diagnosis that you have just heard the Apostle Paul give to both Jews and Gentiles that were hopeless before God, if you will have faith for that, then you will have faith for the preaching of the gospel to bring people to their knees. And you will forget about the pecking order of your family, about who's good, who's not good, what they think of you. It doesn't really matter what they think of you. They didn't like Jesus. And they were saved. You need to be somebody that nobody likes. Time or done. Stop. I will stop. Have faith for what the Apostle Paul is saying, and that this is the good news. This is the good news. We, we don't keep track of each other anymore. We just live humbly with each other, okay? Let's come to the table and eat.